What's going on in America? Coronavirus apparently out of control, a president seemingly trying to incite a civil war, huge economic challenges, massive cultural divides. Is this a failing state caught in an inexorable death spiral? Or could America rebound and unite again as it did in the late 19th century, in the middle of the 20th century? What hope can American progressives have? This is Bridges to the Future, the Big Ideas podcast, brought to you by the RSA with your host, Matthew Taylor. To help me understand what's happening in America and what might happen next, I'm joined by a good friend of the RSA, Anne-Marie Slaughter, who's Chief Executive Officer of the New America Organization. How are you, Anne-Marie? I'm great. It's good to hear your voice. I think we last spoke, didn't we, kind of springtime? It was a while before the election. I know that. The virus was just starting then. The big issue I think we were talking about was, you know, what would happen in the election. An awful lot has changed since then. And so I just want to go through a whole set of issues. Let's start with COVID. America looks to be on an inexorable path to 300,000 deaths and beyond, I think, just in the last couple of days, the highest death total in one day. It feels like it's, notwithstanding the fact that there'll be a vaccine at some point soon, but it does feel at the moment like it's out of control. Tell us in Britain, and of course, we've got our own problems here, but how does it feel in America in terms of the pandemic? I think there is no one way to answer that question because the pandemic has exposed and widened many of the fissures that were already problems in America. So for people like me who are sitting in their house and working online, many of us obviously want to be able to see loved ones and travel, but this is not the hardship, much less the devastating tragedy that it is for frontline workers, for Americans who have been exposed, or more importantly, whose family members have been exposed and, of course, have lost so many people. So there's almost a kind of abstract quality to the numbers, which I don't think was true in 1918. And, of course, is not at all true if you are a frontline medical worker or you're any kind of health worker, just as the economic ravages of the virus are very much bifurcated. I think we're all conscious that this is unconscionable, that hundreds of thousands of Americans are dying. I mean, it's more than all the wars until you get back to World War II. And yet at the same time, because it's been going on for so long, the fact that it's getting worse is not immediately perceivable unless you're actually, you know, there, you have it or someone you know has had it. And even there, my son had it, but recovered in three days. So even there, it's a very disparate experience. And this is a peculiar thing, Amory, and I, I agree with you. I don't think it's that different in Britain. And I wonder what's your hunch about this. In five years' time, will we look back on 2020 and say it was a year, and I'm talking here about COVID, all sorts of other things happened this year, but in terms of the pandemic, it was a year when everything changed as a consequence of the pandemic, or will we look back on it and just say it was a year out of history? It was a year dominated by this one-off thing, but actually 
in 2021, the issues were not that different to the issues that were there before the pandemic. Do you have a sense of whether people will look back and see this as a turning point or simply as a kind of as a second of aberration? It's such a great question. To some extent, it depends on how fast the vaccine, you know, can be distributed. But also, of course, we don't know whether this is a vaccine that will protect against COVID forever or whether just this strain of COVID. So there's a great deal we don't know. I think if you were to say in a couple of years, so let's say 2024, people looking back, it's more likely to be, well, that was the year out of time. If you look back from 2030, I think you're going to see really profound changes in the way education is delivered, in the way most of us work, in the way medicine is delivered, in the nature of small business. And those changes will be traced back to this year. Not that we didn't have them before. We've had telemedicine before. We've had online education. But fundamentally, the weight of habit was still the old way of doing things. And now we've had, we will have had over a year of forced habit change. And even though people may go back to school and people may go back to their campuses, they're going to start thinking, well, why am I paying this much money for this? And wait a minute, my child actually would do better sort of part in the classroom and part not. And doctors already are saying, well, wait a minute, there's a whole half of my practice where why should I make people come in? I think this will have been the hinge or the catalyst for the full digital transformation of our world that we knew was coming. But we may not be able to see the full impact of that and trace it back for maybe, you know, a decade. And to what extent does what's happened in terms of COVID underline, has it struck home the sense of the weakness of American infrastructure? I don't just mean traditional infrastructure, roads and things like that, but I mean the health infrastructure, the wider social infrastructure. That's a lesson that one might hope that would be gleaned from the outside. Is that a lesson or is it simply like so much in America, something which just disappears into the divide? So it confirms progressive views about the need for government to be stronger and healthcare to be stronger, but it doesn't really have any impact on those people who don't have any faith in government. It certainly does confirm everybody on the left and a lot of folks at the center, their sense that we are just crumbling, that decades of assault on government have had their impact. And government at the federal level has not been able to respond, although it's hard to separate that from the Trump administration itself. You know, so it wasn't very long ago that we had Ebola. We never had anything like these numbers, but we had a health security directorate at the National Security Council and the CDC was totally on its game. And had we had that at the outset, we might well have been able to deliver a testing and tracing strategy that would have prevented certainly at least this second wave. I think though, in terms of, well, does that, Do we pick up support across the political divide for the recognition that the United States really has one of the worst healthcare systems in all of the OECD countries and that we pay more for it and we get less for it? In part, that may be a function of how far this second wave goes, because this second wave is across the country. It is in a lot of states that refuse to wear masks and that saw this as a political thing. And as their family members die, or it doesn't always have to be immediate, it can be one away. You know, if my friend's 
relative died or was gravely ill, because it's not just about the death toll, that may help convince people that we need a public health infrastructure that is much stronger. Great. Well, I want to come on to the question of what the Biden agenda might be in a moment. But before we get into that, Trump. Now, I have to admit, Amory, I'm a bit of an alarmist when it comes to Trump. That is to say, most of the commentary I read says that, you know, what Trump is doing is disgraceful and ludicrous and ugly. And it's really about him building up support for 2024, about his kind of psychological inability to let go. But in the end, it doesn't really matter because he'll have to go. But I don't know. I read his tweets. I look at the number of Republicans who seem to be willing to support him. And as an as I say, I am alarmist about this. I still think he is trying to find a way of staying there. And th there's no limit. And I, I expect any day for him to say, we need to have a new election in a post-coronavirus world. And I fully suspect that if you were to say, we need a new election to challenge Biden to, to agree to a new election, most of the Republican Party would line up behind him. So is this just the ugly playing out of something or is there still some jeopardy here? I do think it's just playing out for a couple of reasons. That's reassuring um, to hear. <laughs> <laughs> I do. So for a couple of reasons, before the election, I truly thought there was a 30, 40, even 50% chance that there would be violence at polling places across the country, that the election would not be allowed to go forward, that Trump would declare that he'd won and the establishment would line up with him and we would have to take to the streets. And instead, you know, there were a few cases of some of his armed supporters showing up at polling places, but tiny, whereas he had said, no, you know, he'd basically been calling on his supporters to come and monitor the vote with guns. That didn't happen. Then, you know, Fox News called Arizona. Now that's telling you something. And Rupert Murdoch started to flip so fast, right? He really, within about four days after the election, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Post and Fox News were moving on. And they were moving on because they thought power is shifting and you follow the power. And then you have, you know, the Republican state legislators of Michigan, who go to the White House, listen to Trump's pitch and say, we're, no way are we violating the law here. And the heroes, you know, the Secretary of State of Georgia, who's willing to take on his own party. And I think overall, the system has held, you know, the Supreme Court dismisses the appeal from Trump's challenging of the election results in Pennsylvania without a dissent, without a word, including the three justices that Trump appointed. And I'm quite confident that this Supreme Court is not going to see this election interfered with in any way. So I think Biden will be, you know, inaugurated and there will be a transition. That said, Trump and Trumpism are not going away. Just like populism in Britain and in many parts of Europe, this is a real thing and it's exacerbated by the insanity of our political system and social media, but it is not limited to the United States. And so we, we do have a deeper problem. The last thing I'll say to reassure you is the reason the Republicans in Congress are not crossing him, maybe it's because of 2024, but much more likely this is all about Georgia, because control of the Senate is at stake 
and nobody wants to cross Trump in a way that creates internal Republican Party infighting when the Senate is at stake. So they're lining up because of Georgia. Well, no one else has been able to reassure me, Amory, but you have reassured me somewhat. I should. The problem is, you see, I started reading the man's tweets. And when you read the man's tweets, you do you get yeah. sucked into a vortex of, of kind of weirdness where you believe anything is possible. So I, I will heed... <laughs> your wisdom and I will stop okay. reading his I will stop reading his tweets it's not good it's not good for me yeah he's unhinged well he is unhinged but I just make a small observation Marie. I think it seems to be one of the problems in America and one of the reasons why although we have many issues in Britain and we are of course I am talking to you at, at a time when it looks increasingly as though we're going to have a very very problematic exit from the European Union so we've got our own problems but it does seem to be one of the difficulties in America is that it's possible to make money out of being completely mad. <laughs> you know, America is a large enough country for crazed evangelicals, fake newsers, conspiracy theorists, kind of hysterical shock jocks. There are enough people to make a living out of being completely deranged. And actually, that's probably not the case in Britain. I mean, in Britain, there are lots of kind of, you know, slightly deranged people, but generally speaking, it's hard for them to pay the bills. <laughs> That's a fascinating thesis. I've never thought about it. It's certainly true. And you look at QAnon and you just think, what on earth? And that's not the worst. So that's actually interesting. One would have to compare it to Russia, but then Russia doesn't have the population. It just has the size. And China is an authoritarian government. I'm trying to think about if it really is related to the size of the economy being able to make money. I just noticed that when Fox News decided to choose Sanity, immediately a new television network, One Nation America or whatever it's called, the one that Trump constantly tweets parts of, that this emerges. And it look, I watch it. It's a proper television network. It's got you know people with makeup and cameras and somebody's funding it, even though it's all completely crazy. So I don't, you know, in Britain, you would find it very hard to fund a network entirely based on fake news and conspiracy theories. <laughs> it just wouldn't be enough people to watch it. Anyway, let's move on. So you're confident that Joe Biden will be inaugurated and, and will start. So I want to ask you to tell me what you think is going to happen and also what you think should happen, of course, in three domains. And the first I want to look at is uniting the country. Obviously, Joe Biden talked a lot about uniting the country. The danger is it just is pious words. What concretely can he do to unite the nation apart from the fact that he isn't Donald Trump? I think the answer depends on how deep or wide the Trump fanatic segment is. So if you think there's a hardcore of, let's say, 40% of the Republican Party, let's say 50% of the Republican Party, the Republicans are only 29% of the United States, so you're at 15% roughly if it's 50% of Republicans. And then you think there are a lot of others who, yes, you know, they're going to go along, but a lot of them didn't like Trump, but they like the policies. And there are a lot of centrists, or not centrists, independents, but who are in the same way. Because 40% of Americans are independent, so only 30% Dems, 29% Republicans, and the rest independents. But the independents generally split. They sort of break right or break left. If, in fact and I believe this, but it may be the triumph of hope over expectation, there are a lot of folks who actually hate the craziness 
and really didn't like Trump, but also really didn't like Hillary Clinton or thought we needed a change. Then I think Biden's ability just to really not only call for unity, but to embody it as somebody who really is, he's an older white man with working class roots. That gives him the ability to talk to folks across the country that Trump never tried to do and Barack Obama did, but couldn't for many reasons. So I think there'll be a premium for a while or a bump just having a president who actually speaks the language of unity again and reaches across the aisle. And that he and Mitch McConnell, we'll see, because Mitch McConnell will have a choice, right? Is he going to just continue the same playbook or is he going to allow some things to get done? And he and Joe Biden have known each other for a very long time. But I think we shouldn't discount for many people, simply the old fashioned, you know, we are in a crisis and we need to pull together. We've had four years of Trump deliberately trying to divide us. So how does Biden do that at the same time as maintaining the support of the younger, more radical wing of his party? I mean, that feels like you'd be stretched almost to breaking point to have a message and a policy platform that would keep your kind of radical base energized, but also reach out. He won't be able to hold on to the radical left while he does this because, you know, the desire for any kind of unity are fighting words. And the place where I agree with that is that I don't think we can have unity without more of a reckoning, a historical reckoning, a racial reckoning. In other words, I do think there needs to be far more truth-telling in this country in a way that we really haven't done. And it did, did for a little while, maybe after the Civil War, but not since then. But I think that he can satisfy in various ways, whether it's a Truth and Reconciliation Commission or other hearings. I think if you'll note, he's appointed a lot of people of color to his administration and more to come, they are mostly moderates. And that's important because there are also a ton of folks out there, like all the African-American women who turned the election around for him in South Carolina, who are progressive in the sense of they want real economic change, they want healthcare change, they want a, you know an infrastructure of care, they want racial justice but they are not at all willing to follow the sort of extreme left of the Democratic Party. So he's walking a line there where he's got a fair number of moderates, including his vice president, who's a historic figure, but far more moderate, certainly than the Bernie Sanders part of the Democratic Party. So I think he does, as I said, he's got to to really focus on racial justice and on truth-telling, radical truth-telling, But then he can also, I think, say, look, we're not going to move forward as a country by demonizing each other. We can't. And we need to move forward. And that if he succeeds in actually getting some things done that are moving forward, I think he'll have enough of a majority to govern and ultimately to be reelected. And that's so interesting, Amarina. I think it goes back to something we talked about earlier this year, which is that That's got to be a strategy that isn't a strategy of triangulation, as we used to describe it, but it's a a strategy of, is it a strategy of 
going back to the core principles of the American Republic and defining them for the 21st century and saying these are the principles we share, but we have to ask ourselves deep questions about how we fulfill those principles in the modern world. And that isn't triangulation. That's a principled approach. But it is also one which reaches out to people because in the end, it's patriotic. It's about America. It's about pride in America. But it's radical in the sense that it recognizes that America has not lived up to those values well up to now. Yes. And you and I are completely agreed on that. And it is absolutely not triangulation. It is a what I would call a reckoning and a renewal. And the reckoning has to happen. We have to say, look, these are our ideals and we proclaim them in the Declaration of Independence. And yes, that was written by you know, a man and advised by others who kept people enslaved and were hypocrites and knew they were hypocrites. Nevertheless, it was a universal call that was radical for white people, white men at the time. And the fact that it's there, the fact that we can be honest about not living up to it, and then that we can once again commit ourselves to try and be proud of that, because that's really the split. There are lots of folks on the hard left that are just really uncomfortable with sort of love of country, even though, you know, you have folks like James Baldwin saying, I love America more than any other country, and that's why I reserve the right to criticize her perpetually. And I'm okay with that, right? But there has to be pride and a sense that we are bound together by something. Let's turn to the kind of policy agenda. What do you think people will, in a couple of years, be saying is the kind of core of the economic and social policy strategy? Is it social justice redistribution? Is it modernization technology? Is it green economy, sustainability? I mean, you'll probably say it's a mixture of all of these things. But what do you think is going to be the key big idea that runs through the whole of the kind of policy strategy? So, <laughs> Whoever's working on Joe Biden's inauguration speech is bound to be asking exactly that question. Yeah, well, that's the question, I guess. That's the question. What's the headline of that speech? Yeah. Right, exactly. And I think it is more that America can once again do big things in the world. That what will tie these things together, the idea that we absolutely have to modernize our economy, starting with universal high quality broadband uh, accessible to all, which would itself do a good bit to narrow racial gaps, that we must build an entire new green economy that is sustainable and help save the planet, that these are the moonshots of our time. And moonshot now means something so unthinkable, right? But no, that these are grand national projects that we can accomplish. I think the thread, and there's a big racial piece to this, that we can face our past. We can embrace our future. We will be a plurality country by 2040. And by 2027, a majority of Americans under 30 will be plurality rather than majority white. And that what he will want to try to do is to remind us 
particularly after just the incompetence of the way we're dealing with the pandemic is just stunning. Again, even if you're not feeling it day in, day out, you're, you're looking at us versus other countries around the world. There are lots of African countries that have dealt with it considerably better than we have. So I think it's going to be this larger frame. I don't know that he'll use can-do America again. That may be sort of too trite, but that'll be the underlying feeling of it. And that is, you know, pretty radical given what we've seen in the last few years. Amory, I could talk with you all day, but I'm going to finish by asking you about what in a sense is almost your kind of specialist subject, which is America in the world. I mean, American power, American credibility, American coherence on the world stage has taken a pretty terrible blow. And it's difficult to imagine America retaking the kind of power and prominence that it once had. So what do you think needs to be at the heart of the Joe Biden story about America in the world? I think it has to be that the United States is leading in a very different way, that we are not the indispensable nation, that we are an extremely important nation, and that when we work with our allies and partners, starting with the European Union, but then Britain out of the European Union and our many partners in Asia, when we can play that catalytic role of bringing others along with us, we have enormous ability to solve problems in the world. But that is a very different vision of the United States in the world than either the global policeman or the hegemon or the indispensable nation without which things can't happen. I also think that U.S. leadership in the world has to be broadened so that when people think about that, they think about the Gates Foundation and the role it has played in getting a vaccine, not only created, but also distributed through things like the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization or COVAX. That's coming from an American philanthropy and American pharmaceutical companies and American non-governmental organizations or civic organizations and American universities that America in the world has to mean a whole lot more than the American army in the world or the American military in the world, the American diplomats in the world, as important as they are. And it has to mean the American people in the world standing for something and playing a critical role in solving our global problems. So in a sense, it's almost like the leader of the free world is the phrase, of course. But this is the kind of primus inter pares of the free world. This is the the first amongst equals of the free world rather than the country that that takes on itself the kind of mantle of leader. So it's principles-based, but it's more collaborative. Would that be a way of describing it? Yes, I call it leading from the center, meaning that, you know, we're not out front... (laughs) You know, we're, and we're certainly not up top giving orders. We're sort of at the center of a lot of partners and, again, a lot of non-state actors. And we are able to mobilize and galvanize and support folks in ways that move them and harness that collective ability to solve problems, which is a very different vision even than America, you know, locked into great power competition with China and Russia. Yeah, okay, we can do that. But, you know, the big problems facing the world are not from great power competition. 
Well, Amory, it's been absolutely fascinating to talk to you. I'm afraid now you've spoken to me early in the spring and now I, I'm going to say this is a regular six monthly conversation. So I would love that. I would love that. <laughs> I'm going to be booking you in in May. That is to say, if you haven't taken a job that stops you speaking on podcasts. No, believe me, I'll still be here. <laughs> Great to talk to you. And hey, have a wonderful festive season. Thank you. You too. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.